0: Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman.
1: Welcome to the Money Answers Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Thomas J. Anderson. Uh, he is the author of a new book called The Value of Debt in Retirement. Welcome to the show, Thomas. Hey, thanks so much, Jordan. Appreciate it. Let's start with your background in the financial business before you wrote this book.
2: Well, I went to uh, Washington University in St. Louis and came out into investment banking for a while, and that's actually where I started to realize the disconnect between the ways that uh, companies think and the ways that people think. I moved to the wealth management side of the industry, and I've spent uh, a long time there, did my uh, MBA at the University of Chicago and kind of a couple programs at uh, Wharton and the London School of Economics. So I am kind of an amalgamation of uh, corporate and uh, individual ideas coming together.
1: So, talk a little bit about that—the disconnect of the companies, the way companies think about it, individuals. What, what is that disconnect that you mean?
2: Yeah. So it's interesting. You know, it, um, no matter what room you're in right now, Jordan, you could actually fill it with books and articles written on the ideal uh, corporate capital structure. Nobel Prizes have been awarded on that topic. That's what Modigliani-Miller's Nobel Prize is on. If you don't have the right debt structure as a company, then someone like Carl Icahn comes along and gets crabby with you, buys you, and you know takes you private as a leverage buyout. If you have too much debt and a crisis comes along, then you go bankrupt. Um, what I've thought is, well, what about people? And we've actually studied this quite a bit. It turns out that people either have way too much debt, um, or they're completely debt averse or in a race to get to zero debt. And I think there's an optimal balanced middle ground that people should be considering. And so I just take corporate finance ideas and I make them more conservative, applying them to the individual balance sheet.
1: So you say at the beginning of your book, why everything you've been told is wrong. That's a pretty big statement. What is it that people are being told about how much debt to have in retirement that is typically wrong? Well,
2: it's, it's a bold statement, and uh, uh, you, you've got a lot of books out there, so you know you kind of get some attention. But I think the takeaway here is that most people are thinking when they want to be retired that they should have no debt. I mean, do you think that's kind of the belief that most people are thinking?
1: Uh, nice idea. Most people don't accomplish that, but certainly I would think that would be the ideal uh, that m- most people would have, Yes.
2: That's exactly right. I think people think that that's the ideal. And my take is that's not the ideal. Um, there, you will not wake up one day and find the time that Walmart has no debt or that Pepsi doesn't have debt or Coca-Cola or GE. And I'm not talking about those companies specifically, but more the concept of it. And I think that the ideal of no debt is not necessarily the right one, that there's an optimal balanced middle uh, amount of debt
1: that people could use strategically. So, what is the upside of having debt? Let's take it from the corporate point of view first and see how that translates to the individual. Why? Why is it good to have some debt?
2: You know i'm I'm, I'm talking to you looking at my uh, MacBook Air here, which is made by a company called Apple, one that we're all probably familiar with. If you think about Apple, they have billions of dollars in cash, and they've also recently here been issuing billions of dollars in debt. And and, and why is it? Is it because the the CFO is is, is an idiot and and, and doesn't know that there's a negative spread there? No, it's the most valuable company in the world and they're doing a, a tremendous job. I think what they're doing is they're valuing the liquidity, the flexibility, and the tax benefits associated with the debt. And I think that those are the main themes that people can be using as well. They can use debt to actually reduce their risk, increase the return, and minimize taxes, which is a little bit counterintuitive.
1: Now, does this only apply today where you have very low interest rates? I mean, would the same apply back in the early 80s when we had extremely high interest rates? Or is this basically saying because the rates are low today, that's what makes sense now?
2: Yeah, you really got to break it into this. First of all, it's a great question. And you got to break it into a couple of uh, uh, aspects of the question. Number one, look, if I have an uh, uh, after-tax cost of debt in, in this environment of 2%, and you could earn a rate of return of 4 or 5 or 6%. You know, forget about the days of 8, 10 and 12. Then you'd be capturing a spread and I think if you can capture a spread that having debt can obviously be accretive over time. In fact, it's a mathematical fact that that debt can be beneficial to you over time. I think that there's a little bit of an illusion that in this environment that you can capture a spread, and I worry about people kind of taking my ideas and, you know, um, borrowing money to buy overpriced assets, things like you know, treasury bonds and stocks trading near record high prices, I, I worry about some of the ideas in this environment. In the 1980s, you know, you might have had a mortgage at 13%, but you could buy a treasury bond at 17 You were actually able to capture a spread. In many ways, this book is written to transcend time, and it could be harder to capture a spread today. Regardless of your ability to capture the spread, I think you need to focus on liquidity, though, at the same
1: time. So, for example, you could borrow against home equity, which a lot of people do. Where you can get a pretty good rate prime or a little bit more than prime, mm-hmm. So say you're borrowing at 3 or 4%, something like that, yep. what would be some appropriate uses of that money in retirement if you're borrowing at a low cost like that to, to have a positive carry?
2: Yeah. So, I I, first of all, it's it's essential to know that this book is not about buying things that you can't afford. It's about better ways to pay for things that you already can afford, and and that difference is subtle but very important. I mean, if you can't afford a four thousand dollar TV, then you shouldn't go out and buy a four thousand dollar TV. I think that's pretty straightforward. (laughs) So, um, what happens is is you definitely can, you know, kind of borrow against your home to 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 finance different aspects over time. You can borrow against your investment portfolio. You can create debt in a lot of different ways. You know, mortgage debt, you don't you could just not pay it down as a way of having the debt. And then what I think people should be doing is building up liquid diversified portfolios covering kind of all the bases of uh, around the world in a world neutral perspective. So not depreciating your assets is, I think, the, the key theme over time for people. So whatever it is that you think you can invest in to capture a positive spread, I have some opinions on asset allocation, but, but that's what you should be doing is making sure that you have more assets that are working for you. It takes money to make money.
1: So how do you make it that there's not a mismatch? I mean, when you take on debt, say a home equity loan, you're going to have monthly interest payments to make. Mm-hmm. If you take that money to buy assets that appreciate over time, in the long run, you might be ahead, but those assets may not be producing current income to pay those debts. So how do you kind of match the growth of assets versus the current income needed to pay those debts?
2: Yeah, you've had a lot of good writings about the uses of home equity lines of credit, and it's a very powerful tool. I think what becomes interesting is if, if you actually kind of zoom out from that for, for a quick second um, and, and think about the kind of bigger picture, and let's say that I'm a, a baby boomer, and I think people can kind of fall into three categories. Category number one is that I need a rate of return less than 3% from my portfolio as I get closer to retirement. So let's say I've got a million bucks and I need less than $30,000 a year. Then in all cases, you probably don't need a lot of debt in that situation, right? You've got a pension or, or other things that have you in, in good shape. Let's say that I need between 3 and 5 or 6%. Then you kind of need to make sure that you have everything available for you to be working in the right way. And the next group would be people who need a rate of return greater than five or six percent. Then they have to take risk and they can either do that you know, with debt or by reaching for return in their asset allocation. And I think debt can be a lower risk way of doing that. To be specific on the execution, I find that a lot of baby boomers who are undersaved for retirement are rushing in to pay down their mortgage. And so rather than thinking of, a, of lev- using a home equity line of credit to buy additional assets, my, a real central theme is leave that mortgage debt in place. It might be at a 3 or 4% rate, and your CPA might have told you that that's fully tax deductible. And instead of rushing to pay that mortgage down, build up liquid investable assets and try to get a return higher than that you know, 2 3 or 4%, and now you at least have a, a chance that you can make it over time.
1: But you're mixing two things. One thing is certain, they're going to have to make monthly payments, like on the home equity line. And the return on the assets is uncertain. So how do you kind of balance the certainty on one side that you have to pay versus the uncertainty on the other side with uh, something that may or may not give you a positive return? It's, so what happens is uh, that's why that, this
2: way that we set that stage ends up being so important. Because if you need a rate of return of more than 3%, the bottom line fact is you have to take risk. And you either have to take that risk with your asset allocation or you have to take that risk by having some debt and having more money that's working for you. So make no mistake, there is risk to the strategy and there's risk to having debt. But there's also risk to having you know, a, real, a risky asset allocation strategy. And so what I prove in the book is that a lower risk portfolio with debt is actually better than a high risk portfolio without debt.
1: Okay, good. Now you have a little kind of a triangle. Uh, talking about strategic use of debt in retirement. Uh, Maybe just, people can't see it, but maybe describe what's in your triangle where you talk about returns, offsetting risks, and taxes.
2: Sure. I talk about the fact that uh, there are three things that debt can do for you. Now, each one of these is a fact, but each one of them has different risks that are associated with them. Debt absolutely can increase your rate of return. And so that comes into what you're saying, like if you get a rate of return less than your cost of debt, then you are right that it can destroy value. But it can provide that liquidity along the way, and I hope we'll get to talk about that a little bit more. But if I'm earning you know, 6% of my portfolio and I'm paying 2% on my debt, then I'm capturing a spread of 4, and debt can increase your rate of return. Debt also can reduce your risk, and this is what we were talking about just a moment ago. If I have more money in a portfolio that actually can have a higher probability of making it in retirement. It kind of, it takes money to make money, and there's two things here. Number one, this is actually the central theme of what Harry Markowitz's Nobel Prize was about, so it's not actually just all my work here, but it's a fact. A lower risk portfolio with debt is better than a high risk portfolio without debt, all things being equal. And we talk about that in the book. And the final thing is, we talk about how debt can reduce and almost eliminate your taxes. This is a kissing cousin of the other one. Many people who are retired um, you know, might have a portfolio of stocks and bonds. And let's say that stocks pay you 2% and bonds pay you 2%. I think any way you average those together, you have an income stream of about 2%. And yet they're taking out 4 or 5 or 6%. And what many people are doing is selling down from their portfolio to create that income stream. When you sell your a guaranteed future return of zero on that asset. Intentionally selling your assets is a risky strategy. Borrowing is a risky strategy, but when you borrow, you can actually have zero tax consequences. I show you how you can have a net worth of one, two, three, four, and five million dollars and pay zero taxes in retirement using an optimal debt strategy.
1: Because when you sell assets, you're going to have to pay capital gains or even potentially income tax if it's short term sales. And you're saying That's if you exactly take on right. debt, you don't have to sell the assets. And therefore, you're not going to have that tax uh, liability. That's exactly right. That's the powerful trifecta.
2: Reducing risk, increasing return, and reducing
1: taxes. Very good. All right. We're going to take a break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Thomas J. Anderson. His new book is called Why Everything You've Been Told is Wrong, The Value of Debt in Retirement. And there is a website related to the book, which is valueofdebtinretirement.com. We'll be back after this.
3: The path to leadership excellence begins here.
0: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back
1: to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Thomas J. Anderson. He's the author of a new book called The Value of Debt in Retirement, There is a website related to the book, which is valueofdebtinretirement.com. Welcome back to the show, Tom. You there, Tom? I'm not hearing you, Tom. Okay, Tom will be coming right back. Uh, This is a very controversial book uh, that he's talked about, saying basically that you as an individual should kind of look at your finances in a similar way to the way companies do, and companies are trying to uh, maximize their debt all the time. Are you back with us, Tom? I am back with us. I don't
2: know why we're having the technical difficulty, but I am right here. So, all right.
1: Uh, all right. So, let's go right in. Now, you have five tenets of what you call a debt-inclusive philosophy. What are those five tenets? Yeah. So, uh, the first one is to take a
2: holistic and not an atomistic approach to your debt. And so, you know, If you think about that, um, uh, a lot of people say, I want to buy a car, so I get a car loan. I want to buy a boat, so I get a boat loan. My kids are in college, so I'm either going to you know, take out a student loan or pay cash for that. And I think that what you should actually be doing is taking a holistic approach, saying what is your total balance sheet, and then what's the most effective way to use that balance sheet to borrow at the lowest possible cost to get to the goals that you need to. The next one is to explore thinking and acting like a company. Clearly, there are differences between people and companies, but I think there are strategies that companies use that we can learn from. Understanding the limitations of commonly held views of debt. Look, I've studied at a lot of the top schools in uh, finance. How many classes do you think I've had on personal debt and debt structure?
1: Not not too many. <laughs> it turns out
2: zero, which is, um, uh, I think, amazing, right? So a lot of uh, our thoughts on on debt just kind of come from guesses, and I think that we can be much more academic about it. Being open-minded and, and um, of course, I, I also say setting your sights on an optimal ratio, and we'll hopefully get to that, but how much debt should people have? And then just staying open-minded, asking questions and
1: verifying what works. So if you're a company CFO what is the process by which you figure out the correct amount of leverage that's optimizing your company's overall financial situation? That's a great question. You actually kind of try to figure out two things. What's
2: a, uh, the technically, what you're figuring out is what's the risk of distress and what's the cost of distress. So. Um, what's the, the, everybody has a company is an ecosystem where money comes into it, just like a family is an ecosystem where money comes into it, either from work or when you're retired, it's from your pension and social security and portfolio. What's the risk of there being a shock to that income stream? And then, so how stable is that income stream? And then the other thing you're trying to figure out is what's the cost of distress or what that means is when a shock comes, um, how can you weather it and and how severe does that end up being? And so once you have those data points, companies then back into the actual amount of debt. In Modigliani-Miller's Nobel Prize, what they actually said is the optimal corporate debt strategy starts out at 99%.
1: You're saying 99% of of, uh, the uh, capitalization being in debt, down to the smallest amount, I guess. We're having a little trouble with Tom. His uh, connection is gone. Hopefully, he'll be back soon. Um, what we're talking about is uh, Tom Anderson's book, uh, which is called The Value of Debt in Retirement. And basically what he's saying, you're back with us now, Tom? Yep. Okay. I don't know why you went away, but okay. So you were talking about Mugdaliani, Yes.
2: Yeah, so Mugigliani Miller says starts out at a 99% debt ratio and then it uh, scrolls down from uh, uh, there. And so that's how, how companies approach kind of optimal debt. And you'll see this like, again. Carl, I people in this environment. So they don't have the right debt. In issue or bonds here, and impact shares and so forth. People use those
1: tips of ideas in there. Okay, very good. We're having trouble with the connection. Uh, th- I think it might be better- I can call you from the landline. That'd be helpful. I think I think let's go to a break and then we'll come back on the landline. So uh, we're going to go to a break right now. My guest of this hour is Thomas J. Anderson. His book is called "The Value of Debt in Retirement." And there is a website related to the book, which is valueofdebtinretirement.com. We'll be back after this.
3: Bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now, toll free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in government, the legal arena, and the business world impacts your business every day, and we're going to take you on a behind-the-scenes tour of it all. Each week, we'll bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers and leaders. Squire Patton Boggs will be your guide as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join us for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Channel each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time.
4: It's just a click away at vapresspass.com. That's vapresspass.com. VA PressPass by Voice America. All access all the time.
1: His new book is called The Value of Debt in Retirement, and the website uh, for the book is valueofdebtinretirement.com. Welcome back to the show, Tom. Hey, thanks, Jordan. So let's give a specific example of when credit card debt can actually be positive. Most people think of credit card debt as negative, but how can people use credit card debt positively uh, to help them in retirement?
5: Yeah, so within credit card debt, really what happens is that there are different reasons why we'll get credit card debt balances, right? You know, maybe we've got a a wedding that we're paying for or a short-term situation that we're trying to get through. And and this kind of comes right back to that thinking holistically instead of atomistically. Let's say that I have $25,000 of credit card debt. Maybe my kid has $25,000 of credit card debt, and I know that they're getting buried. They're paying a 20% interest rate on it. Many people also have perhaps a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand dollar investment portfolio. And what you'll find is that you can borrow at a rate of as low as three percent versus those taxable investment assets and refinance out that credit card debt. So instead of having that credit card debt running at, you know, twenty percent on twenty five thousand or almost five grand a year in interest, wouldn't it be better to have that rate be at three percent? And this is just an easy example of using your balance sheet to think in a holistic way and take out a form of debt that many of us have all the time. Any debt that has a rate north of 10% should either be paid down or refinanced out. And There's a lot of ways that people can do that, many times right in front of their notes.
1: So what are some of the ways people can do that? I mean, I think of home equity loan as one example. What are some other good uses of debt uh, and, and sources of good uses of debt? So home equity,
5: so first of all, a mortgage is typically going to be one of the best forms of debt that's out there and so often I see people rushing in to pay down their mortgage. I will often find people having credit card debt and, uh, uh, and they're making payments down on their mortgage trying to get rid of that mortgage, and that just doesn't make sense, but it happens all the time. So mortgage debt is generally going to be good debt. Any debt that has a rate less than 5% and is potentially tax deductible is going to typically be in the category of good debt. So, of course, as you said, a home equity line of credit, another example of good debt. A securities based loan, which can be a loan against your taxable investment portfolio, can be another example of good debt. It needs to be used prudently and at the right loan ratios, not overused, because it's a risky form of debt, but it can be an excellent form as well. And then what happens is you get into anything between 5 and 10, not so good debt. Uh, Hard to find good examples of what you want to have there, and anything over 10% you want to get rid of as fast as you can.
1: Now, you're involved with a company called Better Debt, based in Chicago, which does the security-based lending you were talking about. Tell me a little bit more about what that company does and the pros and cons of security-based debt.
5: Yeah, so what security-based lending is, is it's the process of uh, borrowing against a uh, liquid taxable portfolio. So let's say that you have stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. Uh, if, you work, if that's in a, a managed account, in many cases, that account is not margin-eligible. And unlike margin, uh, securities-based lending is what's called a non-purpose loan, which means that it can't be used to buy or carry or trade securities. So you're just using it to buy other things within your life. And so what happens is this is available at um, uh, many of the large firms today. And it's just starting to become available to the independent channel. And there's a lot of advisors that are, you know, within large firms, and a lot of them are within the independent channel. And so this is just another offering for the independent advisory channel as as well as large firms.
1: So I'm not clear what the difference is between the security-based lending and traditional margin lending, which people think they can borrow typically up to 50% of the value of their portfolios. Yeah, it's a great
5: question. So margin is typically based on how much you have borrowed. So if you just kind of, Charles Schwab is a great firm and known as being a low-cost provider. If you Google Charles Schwab margin, you'll find their rates kind of start out at 8%. And if you borrow twenty five to fifty to $100,000, many times those rates are going to be all be over 5%, which uh, kind of what we said before is violating my rule of where I'd like rates to be. Oftentimes in securities-based lending, you're going to find that the rates start at under 5% and are going to tend to be at prime and lower. And depending on your net worth, you might find rates even down in the 2% and lower range. Some people borrowing at one and a half, and if you're very high net worth, even a 1% range.
1: Can you borrow against private stocks? Say somebody is in a dot-com startup, has not gone public yet, uh, like an Uber would be an example, or Airbnb. Very valuable company with big valuations, but the stock is not trading yet. Can you use security-based lending to borrow against your holdings of that private stock?
5: Great question. Typically, what you're going to find is that the best offerings are going to be for uh, taxable, uh, diversified, eligible things. So not penny stocks, things that trade and can be liquidated within a three-day period of time. Some people are expanding offerings where they will do a very low advance rate, for example, a 20% advance rate against illiquid securities. These could include alternative investments, hedge funds, and private stock, as you're talking about. So You're starting to see some people enter that space a little bit, but it's just kind of the big toe in, and it's still very hard to do that for understandable reasons. The way you're going to get the best rate is a traditional stock, bond, mutual fund portfolio of things that have trade every day and have three-day liquidity.
1: Does that make sense? Say you're working in the Silicon Valley, and uh, you know you're an early employee at a dot com company that you think is going to go public someday. You know Airbnb mm-hmm. or, or uh, um, you know those kind of companies would be a good example. Uh, yeah. And you want to buy a house, and you've got most of your assets tied up in this illiquid stock. Um, is it worth it? Is that a good use of debt to leverage against that? And then when the company does go public eventually, you can pay it back. It could be.
5: So uh, it's a great scenario to talk through. Here are the things that are easy to address with that scenario. Number one, that person is going to need as much cash and liquidity as they can because what they have is a lot of money and a very risky investment that could pay off huge, or if it doesn't work out, then they can be on the street looking for another job, and it might take, you know, 6, 12, 18, 24 months to do so. If I was talking to that person, what I want to make sure is that we have the largest mortgage that we could place and not pay down money to have it tied up in a house. If you tie up money in a house and you lose your job, you can't reaccess that money. And so often with these Silicon Valley people, I see the limited cash resources they have, they take to pay down the house, and they have the stock, and they don't have liquidity. And my central theme is that people need to focus on liquidity. I do feel it makes sense for you to have saved up the 20% down payment to put down, but I'll give you kind of a hybrid combination here. Wouldn't it be nice, let's say they're buying a... is California. Let's say it's a million-dollar property. If they had a $500,000 taxable portfolio, they could borrow, for example, $200,000 versus their securities-based line of credit, put that down as the down payment, and put $800,000 on their mortgage. This would be an effective form of 100% financing, all under 4% in the current rate environment, They'd be eligible for a home equity line of credit, which would create additional liquidity against the house. They'd have the 500000 in the bank, and they'd have their liquid, por- their, um, concentrated portfolio and that closely held stock working for them, but they never had to borrow against that stock directly. That would be a great way for them to be structured, and I would take all that additional money that comes in and build up the portfolio so they have liquidity going forward.
1: Is this the kind of thing you do with individuals is help them Figure out what's appropriate in their case as to how much leverage to take on, and you do private consulting with people to figure these things out.
5: Oh yeah, absolutely. I do spend a lot of time doing that, but uh, most of my time is teaching uh, financial advisors on on appropriate uses of debt strategies. But absolutely work with individuals all the time.
1: Now you have uh, there's kind of a traditional view of good debt versus bad debt, um, and people think good debt is. Like education, maybe mortgages, where you're building assets one way or the other, and bad debt is credit card debt and debt for consumables, things like that. You, you kind of object to that good debt versus bad debt camp. Maybe explain what you object to about that way of looking at things.
5: Well, I, I think that um, rather than focus on these, so uh, conceptually I basically just uh, turn it around a little bit to say that there are two primary criteria to measure. Number one, How much do you need from your portfolio when you're retired? So as we kind of said before, if you need less than 3%, then it might turn out that all debt is bad debt, and you don't have to have debt. I believe that about 20 to 30% of America can kind of take my ideas and rip them up and throw them out and doesn't need to uh, implement them because they are solidly on track for their retirement uh, goals. I think there's another roughly 40% of America that's kind of on the line. They need a lot of things to go their right way, and they need the, all of the tools that they can to, to, get, uh, to be on track. And there's another, frankly, 20 to 30 that is just uh, not on track at all. And so I reframe what's good debt and bad debt relative to you and your goals, because I think it all starts on your specific situation. And then overlay that with what's the rate associated with that debt. So then, of course, the traditional frameworks of debt with a high interest rate bad debt. Debt with a low interest rate could be good debt for
1: you. So it's more about the rate of the debt as opposed to what it's used for. Some people, for example, say student loan debt, although it may be a great burden, is good debt because it's building your earning power over time. Would you disagree with something like that? Yeah, so um,
5: the, uh, people in, in, in the personal finance world, everybody focuses on what's the use of debt. And I think that's just weird because companies don't think about it at all that way, right? Like if I work, if you think about a large financial services company, they might have, you know, 50,000 desks, okay? They don't go out and issue a desk bond, right, to amortizing over 10 years with I don't know what the rate would be for a desk bond, right? Maybe I don't know, it was an 8% bond. I mean, that would just be ridiculous. You don't, you've do not you never bought a desk bond. You've bought a bond from, you know, J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs or whomever else. Companies use their balance sheet to borrow against all of their assets in, in, in the, at the lowest cost with the most flexible terms. People are in this atomistic world. Oh, this is student debt, so therefore it's good debt because it's going for my student financing. This is... I'm buying a boat, so that's bad. And I think that that good debt versus bad debt has to be overlaid with my belief on thinking holistically that what you need to do is use your balance sheet and think and act like a company to think, how can I be the most impactful with the assets that I have?
1: That's definitely a different way of thinking about things. Now, you have uh, seven rules for being a better debtor. So why don't I briefly go through what those rules are?
5: So I think that um, uh, uh, when you're diving into this, you have to first of all think about, uh, is this right for you? Um, And uh, 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 give me one half of a uh, second here. on page Um, 30 of the book here. Yes, absolutely. Uh, So the first one is looking at whether or not uh, you can handle uh, uh, the debt. And I think that there are many people that go out and, You know, debt is like wine, it's like chocolate, it's like coffee. Uh, A little bit of it can be a very good and healthy thing. But for some people, uh, too much of it is is obviously a bad thing, and a lot of people can't handle the responsibility associated with it. You have to figure out if you can handle these ideas. Number two is to not overextend yourself. When I tell you things like securities-based loans at 3%, It messes with people's heads and they start to overextend themselves and buy things that they can't afford. Even if you're getting good debt, you should not buy things that you can't afford. The best way to look at something is, can I pay this off tomorrow if I want to? Do I have the money in the bank? If you have the money in the bank and you have the debt, then you're in a potentially good place. If you don't have the money in the bank, that's not a good place to be. The next one is to make sure that any debt that you take on is high-quality debt. What we were talking about before, generally you want it to have a rate in this environment less than 5%, and ideally you want it to be tax-deductible. Next one is to only take it on in the context of a thoughtful, holistic, and professionally vetted plan. I think you need to be strategic with your debt. Look, if I'm on the Walmart... Uh, earnings call, and the CFO says, hey, we just issued $300 million worth of bonds. We kind of guessed about this. What do you think? That be, that's laughable, right? If companies are thoughtful and strategic with their debt, I think people should be as well. Uh, number five is to get rid of all low-quality and oppressive debt as soon as it's feasible to do so. If you have debt at a rate greater than 10%, refinance that debt as fast as you can or pay it off as fast as you can. That is oppressive debt, It's going to get you into trouble over time. Don't necessarily rush to pay off your existing debt. Uh, What we're saying there is that if you have a a mortgage in particular that's under that 5% range, that could be really good debt. And so often I find retirees pay off debt, retire, and then they say, oops, because once you retire, it is hard to go back and place new debt in your life because you no longer have a job. That's why you want to be thinking about the strategy throughout time. And finally, if you do take on debt, be conservative and be scientific. Uh, this is a risky business. And again, I don't like people taking risk. but if we do have to take risk, I want us to take the lowest risks that we can.
1: You talked about getting the optimal level not to be overextended with debt. Now, that's going to vary according to the assets you've got, but how do you kind of come up with that optimal level of where you're not overextended and you're getting the right amount of leverage?
5: Yeah, so um, it, let's go back to Walmart for a second. Walmart employs about a million people. They go bankrupt, a million people lose their job. Uh, my family is comprised of five people, my wife and me and three children. If I lose my job and go bankrupt, uh, then that impacts five of us. So some people could look at that and say, well, Tom, you should be able to take on more risks than Walmart. But I personally fundamentally disagree with that. I think that these five people to me are more important than those million. And and by that, I mean companies, I think, are in the business of probabilities, but people are in the business of surviving first and foremost. And so I think that people need to be more conservative than companies. And you can agree or disagree with this, but today there are less than five AAA companies in the United States of America. Yeah, I believe if people follow my advice, everybody would have basically be rated the equivalent of a triple-A company. I think the optimal debt ratio for a person is between 15 and 35%, uh, and that, that range kind of, uh, is, is a great starting place for discussions as you're getting closer to retirement. When you're younger, you might want to have it be a little bit higher, but not much, And there are a few reasons why you don't want to break much below that 15% number. That's much more conservative than what companies do.
1: So uh, part two of your book is called The Power of Debt in Reducing Taxes, Increasing Return, Reducing Risk. Let's take these one at a time. We talked a little bit about this, but what are some other ways that taking on debt can help you reduce your taxes?
5: Yeah, so uh, there's uh, really two parts. The first part that we covered is that If you have to create income in retirement, if you sell assets, as you exactly said, triggering capital gains, either short or long term, and that's a known tax event. If you borrow, then you do not have the tax consequence. Those are just tax facts right out of the door. But what else could that do for you? Well, when Mitt Romney was running for office, uh, you might recall that uh, I think there were two main things we learned about taxes. Number one, uh, the top 1% of America doesn't pay as much in taxes as we might think. And number two, Mitt Romney said 47% of America doesn't pay federal income tax. Turns out he was right. They pay Medicare and Social Security taxes, but they don't pay federal income tax. But well, what about everybody else in the middle? I use ideas from both sides of the spectrum to show how you can have a much more tax-efficient retirement income. And in particular, your first eighty thousand once you're retired. You have Social Security and a pension, but all of the other income that you have in retirement will be driven by decisions that you or your financial advisor chooses to make. How much do you have in taxable income? How much are you selling from your portfolio? All of these aspects. I show how there's an optimal amount of ordinary income that you can generate and then take things like the mortgage interest deduction, charitable contributions, medical expenses, you know, state income taxes, property taxes and optimize your income to where you're paying zero federal income
1: tax in retirement. So a lot of people can't kind of figure out exactly what that balance is going to be. How do you figure out that balance?
5: Yeah, so the general rule of thumb is that um, when Annette Romney said that 47% number, if I'm a married family of four making $40,000 a year, you pay approximately zero in federal income tax. Um, your first $100,000 of income, so that first 40 is very, very tax efficient. Between 40 and 100, what happens is there's either the what's called the standard deduction, or people do itemized deductions. In many cases, if you eliminate your mortgage interest deduction, you might accidentally have kicked yourself into the standard deduction, where that itemization was much better for you. And so what happens is I basically show in the book that that $80,000 range of income that you can choose to generate when you are retired is an optimal kind of number, and then I show you how you can even get that up to one hundred and sixty, depending on the type of deductions that you have, and then what you have is the ability to either borrow to generate income above that, or you can choose to you know, pay a nominal amount of taxes if you do sell above those levels.
1: One way you can uh, borrow tax-free is uh, borrow against the cash value of life insurance policy. Is that a good form of debt to borrow against cash value of life insurance uh, to, for retirement income?
5: Yeah, I get a lot of questions about that, and that one can be complicated because what happens is if you get upside down in those policies, they can blow up at the wrong time and you have to be cautious in uh, doing that. Um, It can be a good strategy, but you want to look at what's the internal cost of the debt is going to be one factor, and then what's the internal rate of return that that policy is generating. Sometimes some of those policies have a negative spread where their cost of borrowing is higher than the credit rate that they have, and if that's the case, that can be a quick path to that policy blowing up where you might have to inject money later. In some cases, insurance companies will have an internal cost of borrowing of 5 6 or 7%, even in this environment. And securities-based lending can be a much better alternative if you have the assets to do that uh, instead.
1: Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Thomas J. Anderson. Uh, he's with a firm called Better Debt in Chicago. His book is called The Value of Debt in Retirement. And there is a website related to that book, which is valueofdebtinretirement.com. We'll be back after this.
3: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business
2: Network. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy.
6: Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
4: What if every day was a good day for business because every decision you made was the best choice? What if you could receive regular input from credible sources and could acquire all the precise information you need exactly when you need it so you can make the right decision every single time? Because there's more challenges you to make better decisions. Join Laura Ellis every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel and learn how to think differently for better decisions, better business.
6: Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN.
0: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money
1: Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Thomas J. Anderson of Better Debt. He's also written a book called The Value of Debt in Retirement. And there is a website related to that book, which is valueofdebtinretirement.com. Welcome back to the show, Tom. Hey, thanks so much. So we talked about how debt can lower your taxes in various ways, and then you talk about risk matters more than return. So how can debt uh, lower your risk and increase your return?
5: Yeah, so um, this is uh, one of my absolute favorite parts of the book, and um, uh, it's interesting because different people like to approach it different ways. There are some people who love math and some people who absolutely hate math. And it seems like the attitudes toward math are just extreme on both sides. So I'll answer it for the non-math people first, and then I'll give you just a little bit of math around it. But you've probably heard the saying, it takes money to make money, right? Yes. And if you think about that, if you have a million dollars in a portfolio and uh, that has a rate of return, let's say of 6% on it, then that's going to be $60,000 a year of income that's coming in. If you have $500,000 and that's earning that same rate of return of 6%, then that's going to be $30,000 of income or half the amount. So the more money you have in your portfolio, all things equal the more income that's coming in. And so that, of course, makes sense. And so then what you see is that, well, if your debt that you use to have that greater assets costs you less than your rate of return, then it can be very, very valuable and increase the overall rate of return in the portfolio. So, make sense so, so far?
1: If the assets go up, yeah, but the, the leverage can work against you if the assets go down.
5: There's no question that the leverage can work against you if the assets go down. So, let's kind of uh, uh, do a, a, a very simple uh, example. If I have um, a, a, a million-dollar portfolio, I just won you know, the, the lottery, okay? And um, I am you know kind of you're right in your neighborhood and I say, you know what? I've always wanted to own a $500,000 house. So person number one buys the $500,000 house and then they have a $500,000 portfolio and they get on average a six percent rate of return. Now anytime you have averages, markets will go up and down. That's a fact. I have a whole chapter in the book about all of the reasons that I think the world can fall apart. I think we will go through another 2008. I think a lot of bad things are going to happen out there. The key is, are you averaging that 6% over time? And if that's the case, then you know, that person number one would own their house and have a $30,000 a year income stream in retirement. What I would say to that person is, you know what? I don't know if that's the right strategy. I would like for you to buy that house, but let's put a $400,000 mortgage against it. And so then that would leave you, you're buying the $500,000 house, you would then have a $900,000 portfolio. So you'd have 1.4 million of assets, 400,000 of debt, 1.4 less 400, your net worth is still a million dollars, I can't change your net worth with financing. But in this example at that same 6% return, 6% 6% by the 900 to be 54000 of income. And let's say that your CPA says, hey, your after-tax cost of that loan is 2%. So here again, forget about the days of 8 and 10 and 12. If you average 6 and your after-tax cost of that loan is 2, then that's going to be 54000 of income less 8000 of debt expense. That's $45,000 a year of income. The same person, one person is making 30000 a year, The other person's making 45, and they're in the exact same portfolio. Another way of looking at this is that in order for the first person to get that $45,000 a year of income, they would have to have a 9% rate of return on their portfolio. 9% by 500 is the $45,000. This comes into the fact that there are two ways to generate a 9% rate of return. Way number one, look for assets that have a 9% rate of return. Way number two is to lever a six. There are, of course, more assets that pay 6% than pay 9 and this is why all things equal. A lower volatility portfolio with debt is better than a high volatility portfolio without debt, and that is not my line. and actually stealing that from Harry Markowitz, who won the Nobel
1: Prize. So by leveraging those assets, uh, you're going to increase your income over time. As long as the assets... Now, it, it, let's let's take what you just said and go through a 2008 scenario. And the value yeah. of assets are dropping sharply and uh, uh, the credit markets are freezing up. You might even be... Remember, they were lowering people's credit uh, lines and freezing HELOCs and all kinds of things. How would what you just it talked worked. about go through a 2008-like scenario? Let's walk through that exactly. I'm glad you
5: asked it. So in this example, I called the person Jane. So Jane, won owns her house outright and has a $500,000 portfolio. So Jane, while she's in this crisis, maybe Jane loses her job. Maybe Jane wants to move. The problem is, is that Jane one, who owns her house outright and has the $500,000 does not have a lot of liquidity or flexibility. She has the $500,000, but that now, if it's, oh, wait, maybe it's worth 30% less. Is she supposed to liquidate that if she's in crisis? She's not in as good of a situation. What about Jane number two? That portfolio clearly could have gone down in value. And what I actually show is you want to have a much lower volatility portfolio. And I show you how you can actually create that in the book that's in Chapter 7. But I say you don't need to be up as much, but you've got to give up those downs. And let's say that her portfolio fell by 20% during '08 because she was half stocks and half bonds. So stock market fell by 40%. Bond market, certain parts of it were positive 30%. But let's just say she was flat. 20% correction on that 900 grand, she'd be down $180,000. But because her debt was struck as a mortgage, mortgage is what's called permanent financing. Once your mortgage is in place, if your current's on your payments, nobody can take that mortgage away from you. Jane could have continued to make the payments during that cycle just fine, but she would have had much more liquidity and flexibility because she had more money in the bank that was working for her. What I show in the portfolio is that lower volatility, and that's what I just think so many people are in these high risk portfolios. And if you have more than 50% of your assets in U.S. stocks, I think that's a high risk portfolio. And there are many alternatives for that, that a lower volatility portfolio with some debt can be so much better for you. And we mathematically prove that in the book.
1: So these are the different elements to kind of optimize your debt the volatility of the portfolio. Liquidity is very key. What level of liquidity you have, and you have to be able to think in advance to be able to withstand a big downturn, both in the asset markets like stocks and bonds and real estate, and in the credit markets. I mean, if you're, how do you deal with this if your credit lines are frozen, as often happened in in two thousand eight?
5: Yeah, that's why I love uh, two things. So number one, mortgage debt it was not for, if you had a mortgage in place. Uh, um, I was actually speaking on a panel with members of the Federal Reserve uh, uh, recently, and we talked about how companies and people have responded differently to the crisis. Companies said, my lines of credit were frozen. Banks screwed me. I'm never going to let that happen to me again. Therefore, I'm actually going to have a lot of cash and debt. I value liquidity and flexibility. People said, debt is the evil that caused the crisis. I'm going to rush in to get rid of all of my debt. And I don't think that's the right response. If you have a mortgage that's in place today and I give you $100,000 and you pay it down on that mortgage, that's a one-way trip. If a crisis comes, when a crisis comes, you can't access it again. And so your, your mortgage was not taken from you in 08. Your home equity line of credit was potentially shut down, absolutely. But your mortgage was, was, was fine. And that's why I actually like mortgage debt being left in place, especially in this low interest rate uh, environment. Does that make some sense there?
1: It does. It does indeed. We've got about a minute or so to go. Why don't you kind of sum up uh, what you're talking about here as far as getting the appropriate level of debt uh, in retirement and how it's kind of an unconventional way of looking at these things compared to the way most people hear about this stuff.
5: Yeah, I think, so the, in summary, I think that most people tend to have too much debt or they have way too little debt and they're completely debt averse. I think those that are in the optimal zone are generally there by luck and chance. They got there by guessing. I don't think that people should guess with their money. I think they should be strategic. I think that how much debt you have will be one of the greatest determining factors of how much liquidity you have, how much flexibility you have, and the overall rate of return on your portfolio. I think your questions about 2008 are some of the most important. It is my fundamental belief that weird stuff will happen in the future. I think that we will go through another 2008 type event, and you have to be prepared for crisis. And when crisis comes, I think what you want is liquidity and flexibility. And I think portfolios should be positioned for offense and defense and to capture kind of a wide range of outcomes and provide hopefully really um, an approachable way to address that offense and defense. But be strategic and be thoughtful and be holistic with your debt, and hopefully it can put you on a good path to increasing returns, decreasing taxes, and actually reducing your
1: risk. Very good. Well, thanks so much. Some interesting things for people to think about. My guest this hour has been Thomas J. Anderson. Uh, He is the author of this uh, new book called The Value of Debt in Retirement. Uh, There is a website related to it, which is valueofdebtinretirement.com. He also works with a company called Better Debt, uh, based in Chicago. Thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Tom.
5: Thanks so much, Jordan. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks again, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now.